Hello, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we've got an exciting episode planned for you. We got fossils. We got rocks. We got minerals. We got a lapidary story. What's the difference between precious and semi-precious stones? Gray fossil site. Snake fly fossil. We've got where the first gold, where to find it, where the best place to find gold is in the river. We're going to talk about red falcon jasper. Jewelry making contest. And if we've got time, we're going to talk about Rich Hill. We're going to talk about more about the geology, some of the first history of the area, finding mines, and so much more, guys. So much more. We've got an up-and-coming plan discussion with Cole Younger, a very experienced prospector. He's um, going to talk about the superstitious mountains. He's been uh, prospecting in that area. And uh, looking around for quite some time. So we're going to go check that out. Hopefully you will be tuned in uh, this week for that. We're trying to schedule that for this weekend. So we might actually be able to put that out um, maybe Friday evening or Saturday. So guys, if you haven't stopped by our website, it's RadicalRocks.com. RadicalRocks.com. You scroll down to the bottom. You have got... Our links to social media. We have thousands of community members on different applications. Um, Parlor, we don't have too many. We've got quite a few thousands on uh, MeWe. Uh, we're also on Facebook. You can see our videos at YouTube or Rumble. Most of them are on YouTube right now, but uh, we've got rock hounding trips, all kinds of things you can explore with us. Our lapidary works, uh, silversmithing, coin ring making. Um, all kinds of interesting, informative stuff. Rock stabilization. In fact, uh, I've been postponing but planning a big video on hardening and stabilizing rocks and minerals with heat, with epoxies, and with the vacuum um, technique. I've got a beautiful vacuum chamber to share with you. I'm getting that set up. I will share with how we do that. And um, that is always very interesting to a lot of people. So what else we got going on? Um, this is episode 106 of our podcast. Radical Rocks has been around for a while, folks. We started our first Yahoo group in 2009. Um, that has since gone defunct. Yahoo has uh, closed that down. We decided after just kind of stagnating uh, last year to go ahead and ramp things up notify all our other members and grow even bigger with Radical Rocks, um, all things Radical Rocks on podcasts, blogs, videos, and social media. So that's what we've been doing, guys. Come down and support it in any way you can, um, especially subscribing, liking, commenting. That helps us grow. Uh, we want to grow. We also uh, put a little ad in the Rock and Gym magazine. It's uh, way in the back, tiny little ad, just talking about um, what we have to offer for education and entertainment. So hopefully you can be a part of that. 
So let's get right into it, guys. Um, one of the first things I'd like to share with you is the Orange Belt Mineralogical Society. Um, that is in San Diego, or excuse me, San Bernardino County in San Bernardino City in California. It's uh, probably one of the oldest rock hounding, rock mineralization, uh, mineral collecting uh, groups on on the West Coast. And uh, the history proves that. But they are having a field trip on April 24th, uh, this upcoming weekend. They're going to the Strawberry Onyx site in the Bristol Mountains. And um, they also, on May 22nd, are going to the Coaheef Mine. Now, the Strawberry Onyx is beautiful. They've got some pictures here of it uh, with uh, layers of strawberry and lighter colors that you can dig up and um, there, it's a little bit of a walk, so you need to be somewhat healthy. You sign a waiver there, and you can join up with that group. Look them up, the Orange Belt Mineralogical Society, OBMS. Um, lots of nice field trips, good people there if you're in the area. Now, the Coaheef Mine is actually a claim, so that one will cost money. That's $20. They're going to let you get a five-gallon buck of, of rocks, um, this cave onyx is really neat when you cut it, um, but you can just imagine these little bitrudal uh, orbs that are in the rock. Some of it is uh, also waved and textured, um, but it makes some really nice um, lapidary material, and you can look at that and see what that looks like too. Real pretty stuff. All right? So... The Cookie Monster Rock um, <laughs> in the Orange County Register at uh, ocregister.com, you can see there that the rock that looks like a cookie monster ends up in Orange County. This is uh, a little geode that uh, <laughs> looks like the Cookie Monster. It's a bluish color, and um, it came from Brazil, and uh, it sold for some top, top dollars. The article is written by Nathan in Guyan, and uh, this was written on uh, April the 8th, and they've got a picture of the rock here, they've got uh, um, the owner of the rock now displaying it quite proudly, Lucas uh, Farsa shows off his Cookie Monster rock in Newport Beach, uh, the agate that was found in Soledad in a hot spot in southern Brazil, is a dead ringer for the blue-eyed, googly-eyed Sesame Street Muppet, the Cookie Monster. Um, I heard that uh, there was some big money offered for this rock. Um, people were prepared to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for it, um, that it might go up for sale. So we'll see. Maybe he's decided to keep it. They're not talking about the uh, price on that, but really interesting story if you want to check that out. Now, fossils... We've got a lot of fossil stories. Uh, I had to thin through them to make room for all the great rock and mineral stuff that we're going to talk about today. Again, the Red Falcon Jasper. Uh, we're going to talk about how to find gold, where to find gold. We're going to talk about the Rich, Here, Rich Hill Gold. Um, I've got some other interesting rock articles on what the difference of precious and semi-precious is. We're going to discuss that a little bit. Let's talk about some of our fossil news abc4.com where to learn about and see dinosaurs in utah there's a picture here of some pretty awesome tyrannosaurus rex looks like austin facer wrote this on the ninth and 
this area in Utah is a very rich area for fossil discoveries and excavations. According to the Utah Geological Survey, more than 115 different species have been discovered um, that are said to be millions of years old. The Beehive State's fascination with dinosaur is reflected in the official state fossil, Allosaurus. Huge, even bigger than uh, tri uh, the T-Rex, I believe. Whether you prefer herbivores or carnivores or Brinoculosaurus or Stegosaurus, Utah is filled with great places to experience dinosaurs in either actual fossil form or in these dramatic statues or recreations. Um, I don't know if they have animatronics, but those are always very cool. They have this wall of these skulls of these triceratops uh, and different horned animals. These things <laughs> are almost as tall as a person when you go from the snout to the top of the skull. Incredible. You can go to the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at the Johnson Farm. Um, the walls are adorned with these uh, dinosaur fossils and displays all through. Uh, they have Odgen, uh, in Odgins, they have a uh, ecclesic dinosaur park there where there is a lot of footprints that were discovered um, there. You can check that out, see how dinosaurs moved, how they walked, how large or small these creatures were. They've got a monument called the Dinosaur National Monument with a, a beautiful stegosaurus out in the front that looks, you know, lifelike in the playground where you can go check that out. Um, it is kind of roped off because the stegosaurus has some spikes on the tail there. They wouldn't want anybody to get hurt on that. They also um, have the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry. This is where the Allosaurus and many other stegosaurus and other species were found in this area. Um, they have a thousand-year-old area with petroglyphics and petroglyphs and pictographs um, that go back to early man and history here in the United States in Utah. Quite a display of dinosaur. Um, they've got a carnivorous uh, dinosaur museum of ancient life at Saint uh, Thanksgiving Point, another area where you can uh, check out rocks, recreated dinosaur skeletons. Um, the museum at Thanksgiving Point is an experience not to soon be forgotten. There's an educational movie at the Mammoth Screen Theater. That screen shows flicks like Sea Monsters 3D, Dinosaurs of Antarctica, Super Power Dogs 3D, and much, much more. What do you do if you find a fossil in Utah? Well, um, you know, you can make a mold of a fossil. Um, and make your own. That's what most fossils are that you're looking at. They are molds. They are not the original bones. In most cases, these are recreations and casts of the dinosaurs that the museum has. Um, the Utah, I do not know. You know what? They're kind of taking out part of the article here. They want you to uh, keep clicking. But I believe... Um, there you can find dinosaurs, but you would need to um, probably report that. So that's that's uh, would be my guess. Now next, we've got an article 
on Digging the Life of a Paleontologist, Five Tips Where You Can Explore Dinosaurs. You go to stltoday.com and Jim Witherman uh, wrote this special to the Post-Dispatch on April uh, 11th and he talks about the Badlands of South Dakota where there's a dig there um, and you can go and join these digs. They've been open since 2005. Uh, Paleo Adventures, a firm that welcomes people to dinosaur digs. So there's a way to get involved. And of course, they're going to bring you right to a site. Pretty exciting. Um, also, Jurassic Quest is a traveling dinosaur exhibit at the Hollywood Casino Amphitheater in Maryland Heights that is available um, through April 25th. So that is fastly approaching um, the end of the tour there. So you'll have to look up the location if you want to see where they are going next. Um, there's new dinosaur exhibit opening April 17th at the St. Louis Zoo, a Jurassic Quest, which we just talked about at the Hollywood Casino Amphitheater. And several programs are going to be operating this summer that welcome... Um, Amateur paleontologist. Paleon Adventures. You go to paleoadventures.com and you can be a part of this where you can go and uh, go dig fossils. The dig commences at 8 o'clock. The book for people who reserve a space continue, uh, fills up quick. A one day dig is 175 for adult. 150 for child or 550 for a family of four and that's $100. That's $175, $150, and $550. The Two Medicine Dinosaur Center is in Montana. Um, it's tmdinosaurcenter.org. You can go there, and they have uh, nearly 5,000 visitors a year that go to remote north-central Idaho to go check out tours, dinosaurs, which include the first baby dinosaur bones collected in North America. Um, 500 people can sign up to do an actual dig there, and that's been going on since 2010. Amateur paleontologists are divided between seniors, children, and adults. Um, groups are five to ten people. You can dig up uh, some bones, which include duck-billed dinosaurs um, and other creatures all over. Fossil-bearing geological formations are there. You can go straight to their collection room, a half-day dig. Uh, is 85, uh, but involves no digging. Full-day digs are 185. Three-day digs are 360, and five-day digs are 510. So I guess you just get to go for the half-day. You just are basically looking at what's going on. WyomingDinosaurCenter.org. Um, there's another one that you can go to. They have diggings there um, where you can take part. The Mesa Lands Community College. You go to mesalands.edu backslash paleontology. Uh, small Community College offers a big course on hands-on paleontology um, where you can go dig uh, fossils about an hour from the college campus in the Redondo Formation. Um, this was during the Triassic period that you would be digging in these type of fossil beds and find out uh, what they call to as the age of the dawn of the age of dinosaur. 
Um, this is an area they consider to be part of that. Odyssey Traveler at odysseytraveler.com backslash tour hyphen category backslash dinosaur hyphen fossils. You can go there and find out about an adventure of um, dinosaurs in small groups where it uh, you go on a 16-day uh, dinosaurs of the Gobi tour in Mongolia, 10 days tent camping, paleontologists, paleontologists dig in the fossil rich area there in Mongolia. Um, this is where the fossil of, uh, two dinosaurs locked in combat was found. We just talked about that. Um, there's also Argentina and China tours. They do not offer digging options, but the trips include visits to some of the most noteworthy noteworthy dinosaur discovery sites in the world. Um, these trips begin at $7,000 apiece. Also, dinosaurs in St. Louis, Missouri, and Illinois um, maybe get shortchanged, but there are several different areas there. If you go to stltoday.com, you can find out more about all of these different fossil dig sites um, and archaeological sites that you can be a part of if that is something that is calling you, okay? Um, Utah, again, Utah statesman at Utah, uh, US, uh, USUstatesman.com. There is, uh, they're talking about Emily White there talks about hidden treasures at USC's Campus Rock and Mineral Cell there. Um, this article is April 11th, so this has already happened, but you can read about the geology uh, department there and the study that they have on these rocks that go were selling for $0.50 cents to $50, and um, even some with fossils, and uh, all the local uh, rocks um, and things like that you would find from that area and from all over. So um, this helps the department to um, earn some money for what they do and the donations help um, them keep the geology department going so if you want to support that um, you can reach out to emily.white at usu.edu and ask her about that uh, that happening five teeth from a skunk fossil found in chile at the daily sabah uh, daily s a b a h dot com you can read uh, about these skunk teeth and other five dinosaurs that were found in Chile. Um, it goes through the history of the megalodon teeth that were found in that area and the land dwelling animals as large as, as well as these large uh, skunks that lived in uh, Chile and uh, they have found this jawbone with five teeth. And uh, they're quite large, apparently. Uh, they called this animal the Beast of Five Teeth. Uh, it lived in, during the Creaceous period, they believed, at the end of the Mosaic period. They believe it was a herbivore, a rodent-like creature. And um, the finds are very compelling to find out that these mammals exist with uh, ancient dinosaurs that uh, are of reptilian or of avian uh, uh, descendants, as far as they feel. Or or descendants of modern day avians and reptiles, so you can check that out if you want. Pretty cool. Um, current jewelry making contest. Have you made jewelry? Let me get a swig of coffee here, folks. Have you made jewelry? Do you like making jewelry? 
You do wire work? How about chainmail? You work with polymer or clays, metal clays? How about glass or crystal? Metal clay, seed beads, or gemstones? Well, if you do Fire Mountain Gems at firemountaingems.com, they have a contest. You can get $500 gold shopping spree or a $400 silver shopping spree, a $300 bronze shopping spree, and they have a lot of different um, contests and prizes here that you can get from everything from uh, social media, websites, gallery of designs, catalogs, magazine ads, and shopping sprees are the grand prizes here. Uh, if you're interested, go to their website and check that out, or you can go to email beatingcontest at firemtn.com, or you can get their phone number and call them if you want to. All right? Now, our friends at Rockin' Gym Magazine, um, no sponsors for our show. We'd love to have a sponsor, but we have no sponsors. But Rockin' Gym is a great magazine. If you're a rock hound, I think you should definitely subscribe to it. Um, Red Falcon Jasper, they sent me an email telling me about stories and stuff like that. Um, so this is available to the general public. You just go to rock, the letter N, gym.com. Um, subscribe to their um, newsletter and you will get all kinds of great information. This Red Falcon Jasper is from the Dead Camel Mountain area of North Nevada, United States. It is a beautiful rock. I think we talked about this during Valentine's Day. But the matrix and the colors contain mostly yellow, pink, and white. Now, this yellow isn't like a bright yellow. It's like a cream yellow. So it really looks very uh, earthy and, um, you know, Valentine's Day-ish, uh, for lack of a better term. The red falcon patterns usually run through the entire length of the stone and give it this really cool pattern. It's a stone with some beautiful, the the yellow is kind of the background, and then there's these pink swaths, like pink clouds at the end of the evening, at the end of the day, and then up through the middle of the stone or through the sides of the stone or or different designs and shapes like lightning is this orange highlighted in almost a red that goes through it, giving it this beautiful dimension. Some actually have not just swaths, but possible orbs or other colors of the pinkish in the background. Really a beautiful stone. It is very porcelain type of pitcher jasper that resembles the old Ahi Jaspers. Now, this article was put out by Russ Kanyuth, uh, K-A-N-I-U-T-H, and he goes in to talk about this stone, uh, talk about, you know, cutting it. You want to really think about cutting this stuff. It's easy to cut. It's a Jasper, you know, its hardness is probably about 6.5 or, or harder, and he talks about looking at the stone, trying to figure out how's this, you know, the the shot of the um the red with the orange going to go through this to give it the best look the best um adornment for whatever you're going to be putting this cabochon in or this custom shaped stone that you're going to um cabochon out so the technique is look for that angle and try to cut the slab and then bring out the best of that so use a little patience um, look at the stone, make a cut, you know, look at it again and make another cut, you know, just take your time, 
there can be some soft spots in this material, although it is most oftenly very solid in its hardness um, without soft spots for the most part. Um, it would be or should be started after you slab it out and you're going to want to shape it. You're going to want to use about a 80 grit steel wheel um, before moving on to 60 grit soft diamond resin wheel they say works best. The 80 grit will shape nicely but the 60 will smooth it out. Um, you don't want big chips and dips uh, on the stone so you know a 100 grit um, uh, is is pretty hard too 60 grit yeah that's that's pretty pretty aggressive so you know i think probably 100 grit would be even better but you know that's uh up to you what you want to do then they go uh they say instead of going directly to a 280 i added a 140 soft resin to remove scratches quickly uh i realize most don't have the general setup and can't afford it uh, for their lapidary club, but you'll see a huge difference in the process of making cabs with harder jaspers such as this material. So that's something to take into mind. Instead of going to the 280, go to the 140 and see what happens. Um, then you go to the 280. Uh, he dries off the cab continually. You know, you're looking for the flat spots. You're looking for the scratches. As you progress to the 280, you'll start seeing the cab take on a nice polish. A quick test before moving to the 280 grit stage is quickly run the cab surface on the 1200 grit wheel this will definitely reveal any remaining scratches on your work if it passes that test you should be uh, ready for the rest and the rest should be easy as you go down through the grits that you have he recommends going all the way to a 1400 grit wheel which will give you a beautiful mirror polish you shouldn't have to go any further than that um, uh, ceridium oxide could be good for additional polish, but uh, a uh, uh, you don't want to overheat it because you can fracture it. So if you do use a polishing compound, make sure to keep it really, really wet and don't let it get hot at all, okay? Because that would be very bad if it spalded out or had an issue like that. So um, there's a little thing here on Russ, um, and uh, he is the owner of the Sunset Ridge Lapidary Arts and founder of Cabs and, Slob, Cabs and Slabs Facebook group, and they have a link if you want to check out his work. So that's a nice article on a beautiful stone. Uh, there's one that's cabbed out here in a heart shape, which really looks cool, like kind of like a broken heart. How about gold mining? You like gold mining? We've been talking about gold. We're going to talk about Rich, Hole, Rich Hill uh, toward the end of the episode today. Hopefully you've liked those uh, stories. If you do, let me know. Come on down to our um, social media and let us know. Uh, we love to hear from you. A couple of our members have reached out and uh, we've tried to accommodate their requests as best we can. We can't do hour-long shows every, every week. I'm limited on time. But if we ever get a sponsor, maybe I will start doing them more often. Uh, we'll have to see. So let's go and look at gold. The Gold Prospectors Association of America, um, I have been a member with them uh, here and there over the last three decades. And um, just sometimes I just don't maintain the membership because uh, I... I just haven't been able to get out and go. But this is a great organization if you want to get started in gold prospecting. 
Um, they have claims. They have uh, great newsletters. It's a great way to get into it if you're just getting started. This article is written by Kevin Hoagland, uh, Where's the Gold? And that was in the January-February uh, 2021 um, Gold Prospector magazine. And they have a beautiful picture here that shows a creek off to the right, and then the bank of the river goes up. And, of course, um, there's a turn here where the river is turning. And they're showing you how the river really classifies a lot of the gold for you. The gold, uh, as it rushes through the straightaways, uh, as it goes around a corner, the gold is going to drop out in certain areas in the corner um, as the water starts to slow down, this is where it can build up and you can find these layers of pea gravel or whatnot that uh, have been classified where you will find the bigger amount of gold in those layers, which they call values, higher values. So sampling is a good way. Uh, you look for these bins in the creek and you know the low pressure areas uh, right after the river, as let's say the river is going straight, you're looking down the river and it curves to the right. Um, you will see not a lot of gold on the right-hand side uh, immediately, but as you dig into that, sometimes the gold does drop out on the right because the river wants to go forward. Um, so any of the gold that is in that right half of the river can end up dropping out on that right side bank. So digging in that bank um, downstream from the river into the bank and sampling, you may find a layer that has a deposit of gold. Now also, as that river is turning to your right, um, you can go to the other side of the river on the left. The other half of the river that might have contained gold, that gold can get deposited um, as the water loses its momentum uh, going around that corner, it can get pushed up and dropped off on that bank as well. But the inside bank is always um, going to be a better option for the gold. Um, also, huge boulders and rocks in the middle of the river uh, can be a hazard. They can fall on you. They can kill you. Um, but if it's safe and uh, if the river is smaller and you can move that boulder or you can get in and dredge a little bit around it without to any chance of your hand getting pinched in there um, or use a sucker uh, sucker device to suck some of the dirt out of there or if you can dig in there safely, um, then you can sample underneath these rocks um, and find gold sometimes under them. Or if you can get down into the river, into the um, hard rock of the bed, if there is a hard a bed rock there, then you can dig down and crevice in the cracks that gold uh, could have vibrated down to the bottom. A lot of times gold will travel at the bottom of the river during the times of high water, and you can find gold in these cracks. You dig these cracks open with a pry bar a little bit, and suck them out with sucker bottles and suction devices. Um, and you can pan that out and see if you find something. I know in areas where little gold pieces and nuggets are found, many people use crevicing as a technique to find gold where others do not and to find bigger gold where others do not. There's some great uh, diagrams here that show different spots uh, on the river bench. 
uh, as you go in more and toward the edge, what you are looking at, what you could find, and areas of interest that you would work in different techniques. So if you want to check that out, go check it out. Four fun activities that reveal the hidden world of rocks. Um, this is an article by PBS at pbssocal.org. Um, it doesn't look like it's loading properly, but uh, they talk about what is a rock, how scientists study rocks, how scientists tell them apart. Um, this is for, supposed to be for kids. I wouldn't say it's for small, small kids. Um, they would have to have some knowledge and reading ability and awareness. Um, they would probably want to be interested in rocks, but it goes on to talk about rocks and crystals being the molecular structure of rocks like bricks in a wall and looking at these minerals and how they are there and how they are formed and how they are arranged helps them identify what kind of rocks and they compare it to cereal like granola with dried fruit shapes and marshmallows each part of the cereal has a distinct color and shape just like a mineral if you pour some cereal of different types into separate bowls um, you have its separate composition. If you mix them up, then you have the other. So they go through to talk about how scientists use microscopes to identify these rocks, uh, how the colors and conditions are formed um, to or, or create different forms of rocks, minerals, and shapes. They talk about being a rock detective, uh, like going to the beach and looking at rocks and seeing how the rocks wear and... Um, other interesting topics there if you want to share that with your kids. Another fossil discovery deepens the snake fly mystery. I was like, what the heck is a snake fly? In Eureka Alert at eurekaalert.org, there was a news release by Simon Fraser University, and they are looking at this fossil uh, that they feel is uh, millions and millions of years old of a snake fly, which basically looks like some kind of uh, alien mosquito, in my opinion. But a pretty cool description of a living one from today and the fossilized one that they have there. Um, they discovered four new species of ancient insects in British Columbia, and uh, this is being proven by Washington State. Um, these were analyzed at the Fraser University of the Russian Academy of Scientists. And these insects are known as snake flies. Um, and uh, they are learning more about these predatory insects native to the Northern Hemisphere and notably more tropical regions. So they are finding these in very, very cold areas, which indicates that uh, at one time, the climate in Vancouver and Seattle and areas like this where they're also finding these fossils were very tropical at one time. Um, we've talked about this before, much like uh, uh, what's described in the Bible is going along with the findings today as they find um, ferns and things like this at the uh, in, in Greenland and different areas where they did not... Uh, no, we're tropical. All right, go rockhounding in Maine. How to go rockhounding in Maine for gems and crystals. You can go to the bangordailynews.com. 
B-A-N-G-O-R dailynews.com and uh, Esselin Sarnaki on April 7th wrote this article here about Maine. There's a beautiful picture of a chunk of green tourmaline about uh, the size of your thumbnail, bigger actually, and they say um, that you can get in contact with the Maine Mineralogical and Geological Society and they will uh, show you uh, and uh, give you education of these minerals. Pink, green, blue tourmaline, aquamarine, beryl, deep red garnet, purple amethyst, sparkling lepidite, all lie buried in Maine granite. To find them, all you got to do is dig. Of course, you're going to need a chisel and a hammer and uh, some uh, stick to Rock hounding, known as field collecting or recreational mining, is an outdoor act activity which everyday people can search for gems, fossils, and minerals. The thrill is the thrill of the hunt, says Offleadler, president of the Oxford County Mineral and Gem Association. You definitely want to look them up, Oxford County Mineral and Gem Association, and uh, they will help you with this hobby. Um, the burl crystals are beautiful. Some of them are greenish. Some of them are blue. There are some gorgeous amethysts to be found there. There's a picture here of the members of the Maine Mineralogical and Geological Society spread out to search for gems while on a field trip in a hole in the ground quarry in Auburn. And uh, you can check that out. Rock hounding is easy. They've got a link here for Dig Maine Gems that you can hook up to and go check that out. They have a site there. They'll take you up, supply you with hand tools, help you do mineral um, collecting. And uh, there's all sorts of different areas. There's Bethel Outdoor Adventure and Campground. They run a sluice. They do a dig uh, main gyms. They have many mineral events. There's the New England Mineral Conference, which is held annually at the Sunday River. And um, go to the Maine Mineral and Gym Museum in Bethel and find out about the minerals that are there. There's all kinds of opportunities to go mining. It says here um, at the Maine Mineral and Gym Museum, which opened in December 2019, you can view some beautiful minerals. They will give you directions to rock hounding sites that are open to the public, and people will always find something to take home. Something of high value is rare, but you can find something that will be personal to you. Um, all kinds of links here, guys. Check it out. Rock hounding in Maine. Um, some beautiful rocks and quarries and areas to go. Hook up here. The article goes on and on. They talk about uh, feldspar and mica, which were once mined very heavily in Maine. Now, not so much. Um, those areas are good places to search for tourmaline um, that can be made into jewelry. And these pegmatites and jewelry are are currently still being mined and are available for people to check out. Um, there's a book called The New England, A Guide to 100 of the Region's Best Rock Hounding Sites that you can also check out if you want to look at this and find the rock sites that are there from uh, New England states, Maine, New Hampshire, and other areas around there. They talk about what it's like to search for gems, uh, some of the tools that you need, rock hammers, sledges, of course, some safety glasses, folks, and probably some gloves, too. Um, don't use regular hammers. You want to make sure these are special 
for rock hounding. Also, gardening tools can be handy, little shovels and scoops and things like that, screens, good clothing. Uh, face shields can be good because sometimes these rocks can splinter and a chip may uh, hit your face and actually cut you. Um, this can knock out a tooth even if you hit a really big rock and bust a chunk off. This can be quite uh, a way of making your trip suck all of a sudden. So be careful, be safe. Now, explore 4 million years of history at the Gray Fossil Site. This is in Tennessee, United States of America. Um, you go to wate.com and there is the article right there that you can check out by Chelsea Haynes. And uh, in Tennessee, this has got a huge, incredibly rich fossil history there. There's uh, active digs there that you can check out. They've discovered saber-toothed tiger or saber-toothed cat, a tapir, which is like an elephant, alligator, mastodon, just to name a few. So um, there was a hands-on discovery center that they have there that you can check out and so much more. So check that out. Got to have another swig of coffee. All right, next, a guide to gym classification. Um, the gymsociety.org is a wealth of information uh, that's tied into the International Gym Society, IGS. You can go there and do a lot of research and find out some interesting things. They have all kinds of great classes. There's some free stuff, but a lot of stuff you've got to pay for, but certainly a wealth of information. Um Gym classification, you know, we hear the term precious gemstones, and we hear the term semi-precious gemstones. So what is the difference? Well, historically, the original list of valuable gemstones was, through antiquity, was uh, sapphires, rubies, emeralds, um, and amethyst. Now, nowadays, it may be a little different. Of course, there's tons of amethyst out there. It is kind of making a comeback, and you can spend some good money for amethyst. But really, we have a lot of other stones that are called precious gemstones, such as diamonds. Now, diamonds, there's actually tons of diamonds, and some diamonds sell for less than $100 a carat. So just because it's a diamond or a ruby or an emerald or a sapphire or amethyst doesn't mean it can be called precious. It has to be of high quality. Now, also historically, uh, it was thought that precious gemstones would be crystals. These would not be lapidary rocks, um, you know. And then eventually opals have, uh, since early days, have been included in precious gemstones, but they have to be of extraordinary quality. These translucent, milky stones that are not a crystal can be very, very valuable and one of the top-priced gems, uh, costing more per carat than diamonds in some instances. So we're back to what consists of a precious gem. Well, I know a few years back, rare tourmaline, blue tourmaline uh, indicolite, was classified as a precious gemstone, I believe by, by the Gem Society, and uh, has been recognized as such. But nowadays, most uh, gemologists, people who wheel and deal in gemstones, who classify gemstones, who grade gemstones, who study gemstones, do not really refer to precious and semi-precious gemstones. Uh, they just are gemstones. So how do we classify that? Well, it's really up 
to the individuals. You know, jade was not classified as a precious gemstone by most organizations and um, gem professionals, but rare jade and beautiful jadeites can fetch a huge amount of money and are precious to a large part of the population. So these things have to be recognized. Turquoise, some turquoise can sell for over $2,000 a carat. So turquoise can fall into the precious category. So all in all, what would classify a precious gemstone as to just a gemstone? It's going to be very rare, very high quality, um, or unusual, uh, limited supply possibly, um, or uh, diamonds are considered precious gemstone, and there's really lots and lots of diamonds, but because they limit the supply and they control it, um, they are able to maintain a high valuation on diamonds. So it really is up to the individual. Semi-precious um, has been usually thought of as uh, agates and jaspers and gems like that. But really, when you start to do your research, uh, a jasper is not just a jasper. You know, there's common red jasper and there's spectacular pitcher jaspers and uh, Picasso jasper and... Um, different types of jasper that are just beautiful bruno jaspers um painted desert jaspers all kinds of wonderful jaspers ocean jasper um rare jaspers same thing with agate agate you would think is just a semi precious or just a gemstone but some agates are spectacular and can bring a huge amount of money um, for these rare examples of these rocks and gems. So, what is a precious gemstone? To me, it's the one that I like the best. That's the one that's a precious gemstone to me. So, it's up to the individual. It's really interpretation um, to what you think is precious and not precious. So, let's see. What do we got next, guys? Okay, what we got is... Rich Hill. Now, before we get into the Rich Hill um, discussion, I want to remind you guys, it looks like Cole Younger is going to talk to us about the superstitious mountains. He is a very experienced prospector, many decades and decades and decades of experience. He is a real gold miner. He has been on um, on the gold mining show. I forget the name of it. It's, it's not the one on the Discovery Channel that... Um, where they make a big deal about a wheel breaking, but this one is a real prospectors dealing with real issues and uh, mining real gold in uh, Colorado and different areas. So um, this is going to be a fun episode. If you go back, I talked to him before just kind of about his experience and things like that. And um, the guy is a wealth of information and a, a real kick in the pants to talk to. Mr. Cole Younger. So tune in for that. Hopefully we can get that done Friday. We'll get that episode out Friday evening or Saturday. So let's get right into Rich, Hold, uh, Rich Hill Gold, the history of Arizona's most amazing gold district. Um, credited writers are M. Uh, M. Catherine Combine, Ph.D., Chris T. Golston, B.S., Bachelor's of Science, uh, Danette S. Loretta, Ph.D., and Eric B. Melon Clory, Ph.D. Um, this article was signed by Eric. I believe I bought it off of him direct during uh, a show somewhere. I don't remember exactly which. Um, 
We will not be reading this verbatim, but uh, we will give some of the highlights. And um, if you want to obtain this book, just look it up. It is Rich Hill, The History of Arizona's Most Amazing Gold District. I recommend if you are a prospector or interested in Arizona that you get a copy of this. It is a really deep study, a good study. You won't want to miss it. First, we'll go into the geology. And then after the geology, we are going to talk about the history of uh, Pauline Weaver, who really opened up that area and made the initial discovery of Rich Hill Gold. The intrusion of the Apache Dibase Dikes. Now, this goes into the geology of these dikes. Last time we talked about the ancient history, uh, how it happened under the oceans, and how these layers formed with the magma and such. But they believe another period of intrusion by hot magmas of significant volume of rock um, was a third major event. The intrusions were malphic, which is a very dark rock, formed elongated dikes that are believed to be similar to other dikes emplaced in this time through much of Arizona. The dikes are called the Apache Dibase Dikes. They tend to strike northwest to southeast. The intrusion created fractures, this intrusion rather, a weakness in the bedrock, and busted through. The dikes are up to 7 meters wide, sometimes longer than 300 meters. At the surface, the dikes are weathered and have become masses of chlorite, biotite, and calcite, um, which has caused many of these dikes to be mistakenly identified as a granite like rock called dorite. The diabase dikes do not contain gold themselves. However, the very hot intrusions boiled the deep groundwater around them, circulated through fractures of porous rocks, and dissolved and mobilized gold that occurred in low concentrations within the Yavapai metamorphics. And this gold is concentrated by hot waters, possibly as a dissolved gold chloride and so on and so forth. These were channeled along through dissolved quartz with lead, iron, and sulfur at temperatures and pressures near the surface of the earth. Gold quartz and metal sulfites are not stable as dissolved minerals. And that says the fluid formed a lining on the walls of these fractures and over thousands of years, gold quartz and sulfites filled up these fracture zones created by the intrusions of dikes a fraction of an inch at a time. So there you have kind of the technical, um, how it probably happened. Um, this is most significant. Uh, this die base dike is a most significant hard rock in the gold deposits of Rich, Hole, of Rich Hill and the surrounding areas of gold-bearing quartz that are adjacent to these die base dikes. Um, some of the exceptions in the area are the Yarnell Mine, which has many complex vein networks and the octave mine where the veinlets at the yarnell and octave have the same trend as the dye based near them but they're not exactly the same the quartz in the veins is generally a milky white these hollow vugs contain sometimes small crystals and the veins contain gold silver pyrite galena um, calcarite an iron sulfite and a rare zinc sulfite the silver and gold occurs as fine diffusions and fractures with galena pyrite and such and occurs 
from 1 to 24 micron particles of an 80% gold, 20% silver allied mix with sulfite minerals as well. The gold in the Galena load deposits throughout the district average 40% gold, 60% gold called electrum. Pyrite load deposits average about 80% gold and 20% silver. Fire assays, fire assays of samples confirm this ratio for almost all Galena and pyrite ore samples in the area. The, the assays of 100 ounces of gold and silver per ton the pyrite averages 8 to 25 ounces per ton, and the calcarite just 3 to 7 ounces per ton. So um, even though it was documented that the Octave mine and other smaller mines produced many thousands of ounces of silver, there's no report of any native silver occurring within the district. So pretty crazy. The district reported an entire uh, amount of production for lead and copper of 747,610 pounds and then also 326,586 pounds respectively of lead and copper. The electron microscope analysis indicate that minor amounts of gold, tellurite, petzite, and bismuth are also present in the district. So pretty cool. They have some pictures here that show how the dikes formed, where the sources of gold were, um, the site of the potato patch um, before it happened, the potential site, how it would have looked before it rose and went through some other stages of geological upheaval that created this area. Careful geological investigation of the Rikon mine show that there are several generations of gold-bearing primary veins. The oldest vein is the quartz galena and the quartz galena pyrite type, and the youngest are the quartz pyrite calcopyrite veins, and all these veins are bearing gold, but the oldest veins contain the largest amounts of gold and the highest percentage of silver. The mines contain both types, while other types only contain one type. So they talk about how this uplifted these dikes and uh, goes into the next um, part of the formation of the geological event that created Gold Hill and we will go into that next time and talk about the next stage of this activity. Okay, so now we're going to go into some of the history. Amazing history in this area. Um, very sad, a lot of it, but uh, this is what happened. This is what we know. In chapter 4, they talk about the discovery and the development of Rich Hill, and they're highlighting the areas of 1863 to 1886. Now, Pauline Weaver was quite an expeditionist. Um, he was blazing the trail into Arizona, and as you read through this, you will find out that uh, he was quite a man. He made peace with people from most of the Native American tribes, so it is said, he worked for the United States Army. He was an explorer, rancher, trapper, prospector, and entrepreneur, also a landowner, um, and discovered many of Arizona's richest strikes, including Rich Hill. Um, the birth and history of him is really unknown. They've, they've looked at a couple areas, but his first journey was in 1830, 
It was organized by Captain John Rogers from Fort Smith, Arkansas to the Rocky Mountains. They were attacked by the Native Americans and um, they tried to find a new route, so they headed south into New Mexico, which was still part of Mexico. They didn't get a very friendly welcome from the Mexican authorities, and um, they departed and returned to Fort Smith, and um, most of them. There were only 15 men left, including Pauline Weaver. Now, instead of returning to Arkansas, Weaver joined Irwin Young, on a trapping expedition bound for California, and this was his very first trip and journey into Arizona. Uh, the trip that they took was similar to the one that the Spanish exploration teams and parties had done some 200 years earlier, which was west to the Salt and Gila Rivers, or Gila Rivers as it's more properly pronounced, on a beaver trapping trip. They found a lot of resources there, beaver, deer, turkeys. Um, the Apache Indians were there and attacked uh, trappers on several occasions. And Weaver may have have carved the inscription of P. Weaver, 1836, in an adobe building, or near an adobe building, and on the wall of a, a main ruin that is still there at current-day Casa Grande, Arizona. Now, it's also said that he didn't know how to read and write, so maybe he didn't put it there, maybe someone else did, but he was in that area, and uh, at that time, he did obtain a legal document for a ranch um, and petitioned the Mexican government for that and was able to obtain this land. Um, there's a picture of the modern-day Casa Grande where Pollard Weaver's inscription is on the walls of this monument. So I would say that's early day graffiti, right? He defaced uh, some historical sites there, or somebody did in his name. Now there's a map on page 34 that shows the routes that was taken during these expeditions of uh, Irwin Young expedition and so on and so forth, uh, even including he was, and we'll find out in a little bit, the Kit Carson trip in 1846, and then the Mormon Battalion route in 1846 to 47. This guy covered a lot of ground on foot. Unbelievable. And just thinking about this, so they crossed the desert, they reached Arizona or uh, Los Angeles in 1832. Now, a lot of people don't know it, but there was a gold discovery outside of Los Angeles about this time, too. And uh, it was quite big. And it was, uh, you know, before the 49ers and everything. And everybody pretty much picked up spikes and, and moved on to that. But there's an area up there uh, called the Oak of the Golden Dreams where a gold rush played out. And Los Angeles became kind of the uh, uh, city, early city of the day. Can you imagine Los Angeles in 1832? People coming in with these hides and these skins and, uh, you know, Native Americans being there and uh, these uh, settlers from all over the world that had come to United States to settle um, from all over Europe and uh, uh, Ireland and different areas around the world. Uh, amazing. The Spanish, the Mexicans. Uh, it's been a very diverse area since uh, for... Uh, the last 500 years at least that we know of. Um, pretty incredible. The, 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 um, so there they were in Los Angeles and they 
went ahead and got six a hundred mules and took them back uh, for a profit. They sold them. They took a trip to uh, to Teos, where they were going to go, which is the desert regions of eastern Arizona. Very little water there. They lost a lot of their mules, and the young party, including Weaver, arrived in Santa Fe in July 1832 with the remaining mules and many beaver pelts. So it goes on about these these journeys and how they went through there. Um, they talk about his name. Um, he went by many different names, apparently was known by different names, but Pauline is the one that stuck with the most here. And um, he returned to California in the late 1830s or early 1840s where he worked at a lumber mill and a rancher. Um, he had got that ranch he petitioned for at San Gorgonio Pass, California. This is in San Bernardino County area, San Gorgonio Pass. Um, he maintained those interests until 1853. Then he, in 1846, got another opportunity to come to Arizona after the start of the Mexican-American War. This is when he joined the party led by Kit Carson um, and carried the news of American victories in California to Senator Thomas Hart Benton and President James K. Polk. They left Los Angeles on September 15, 1846, bound for Washington, D.C. With 15 men, they traveled across the California desert to the Colorado River, followed the Gila River to Apache Territory, and managed to pass through unscathed. They did trade the Apaches for fresh animals, reached New Mexico uh, on October 6, having traveled over 800 miles in 21 days. Can you imagine that on foot and wild beast traveling 800 miles uh, in 21 days? In those days, no gas stations, no air conditioning, uh, no bathrooms, no fast food. <laughs> Incredible um, survivalist and uh, frontiersmen's. In New Mexico, um, they met Colonel Stephen Watts Kearney, who was marching from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to California, and Kearney ordered Carson to abandon his mission and led the trips back to California. Kearney then sent Pauline Weaver to join Colonel Cook and the Mormon Battalion. That's when he hooked up with the Mormon Battalion. It consisted of 397 troops and over 30 oxen and mule wagons. So instead of facing the rugged terrain along the Gila River, Cook decided to head south along the Rio Grande to find a westward route there. Even though Pauline Weaver was unfamiliar with the area, he was appointed as a lead scout. They departed on October 19, 1846. The journey was made difficult because Weaver, Pauline Weaver, was unfamiliar with the area. Finally, they passed through Tucson, which is a familiar area for Pauline. So he started to do back. He did much better leading them there through the Colorado River across the California desert, and they arrived in San Diego on January 21st, 1846. Um, too late to get involved in the battalion with the Mormon battalion. They discharged Pauline. He went back to San Gorgonio Ranch, east of Los Angeles, which is in San Bernardino County, up in the mountains there, the San Bernardino Mountain Range. And um, the next 10 years, he made occasional trips to Arizona. In 1857, he left California for good and moved to Fort Yuma, 
Uh, Yuma is uh, east of San Diego, just on the Arizona border, close to Mexico. That's where he was. Um, he went for a beaver trip uh, to explore the area, and he went with George A. Johnson, one of the first steamboat exploration um, individuals of the Colorado River. The next year, gold was discovered along the Gila River, about 20 miles from Yuma, leading to the founding of Gila City. A population swelled to 1,200 people, and gold made people come from all over um, to western Arizona. So Weaver went on to go ahead and continue exploring Arizona at this point. Uh, in 1862, about 20 miles south of La Paz, he found more gold on the east side of the Colorado River, about 110 miles north of Yuma. This was the first bonanza that was found in that area. Um, he continued on with his expeditions. One time, uh, an area in a small gulch they were prospecting, they named it El Arroyo de la Tinja, where Weaver found two or three dollars worth of gold, um, and then they went up back to the Colorado River and found in the first gold pan, supposedly, a two-ounce nugget as well as several small pieces of gold. News of the find spread. Many er many people came into the area to strike it rich, um, but they were disappointed that they could not do hydraulic mining. So much of the gold um, uh, was left behind, the finer gold, because of the lack of water. Pauline left the area, was hired for the Union Army during the Civil War, and uh, because the Confederate Army had claimed Arizona, New Mexico for the South, and the United States sent Colonel John H. Uh, Carlton to go contest that. Uh, Carlton decided to capture Tucson, which was be held in by Confederates. They took over quite quickly, regained um, uh, the Union. And uh, the the troops withdrawn. They reclaimed um, the rest of the city and Arizona and New Mexico for the Union on May 20th and June 8th. They returned to Arizona. After the Civil War, Pauline returned to the Weaver Mining District, kept looking for gold. Um, there was a lot of hostility. The Native Americans didn't like these prospectors. A lot of these prospectors were on Native American land that had been given to them at this time. Uh, treaties had been made, and many of these prospectors were murderous SOBs that shot the Indians and took the areas for gold mining. Um, pretty sad. Several weeks after um, Pauline uh, finished up with this, this uh, Civil War area, Pauline met Abraham Harlow Peoples in Yuma. Uh, Peoples had been, and that's his name, his last name, Peoples, had been prospecting Southern Nevada in California, didn't have much luck, decided to come to California, wanted to find out about the, the, the legends of the Spanish mines from two to 300 years earlier, about 300 years early. Now, the Spanish didn't find gold, they only found silver and copper, but the legend had grown that there was an ancient Spanish gold mine somewhere to be found. So they were looking, they looked in the Verde River Valley, um, this was inhabited by Apache and Yavapai Indians. Um, they were not known to welcome European-American guests into their land, so it became largely unexplored for three centuries. 
So acting on the information from Henry Wickenberg, who actually was a gentleman who declared, uh, discovered the uh, a big mine up there in Wickenburg near Staten, Arizona, about 1862 or so, um, they went on a journey up the Colorado River, um, kept on going, and ended up at the base of Rich Hill in late mine. Now, Wickenburg was the one who discovered the famous um, vulture mine in Wickenburg. Um, and that is known to this day, very historical spot. Um, later, they shot three antelope in the area and named the mountain north of Rich Hill, Antelope Mountain, and the, nor uh, the nearby drainage, Antelope Creek. As the meat was drying, several of the men um, named one of the creeks Weaver Creek in honor of their, gar their uh, guide, Mr. Um, Mr. Weaver, and they picked up over eighteen hundred dollars in gold. Now you got to remember, uh, that was when gold was twenty dollars an ounce. So that was uh, about uh, five. Oh my goodness, that's five times eighteen uh, ounces of gold. So two, four, six, eight. I mean, that's that's like eighty ounces of gold. That's a lot of gold. <laughs> and uh, so the gold was quite plentiful. A large amount of nuggets they found on the hilltop. Uh, the hill was literally littered with gold nuggets, uh, some the size of potatoes. And they picked up all these easy pieces laying on the ground. Thus, the area was nicknamed Potato Patch. Within a month, they collected all the gold that was visible on the surface. And then they started digging. The gravels were just as rich. Uh, filled with gold and the Butterfield stage route um, was uh, there for supplies and things like that. If you're familiar with the geode area where we go prospecting for geodes in the Wiley Wells area, the Butterfield Trail, Butterfield stage route goes right through there, very historical area. Um, this was a route through the desert to get supplies to those that were working in the deserts um, that needed sugar, flour, coffee, and other necessary supplies. And several little villages and areas popped up along the way as wells and water could be found. Um, during the height of the gold rush, Pauline was bringing in about 25 pounds of gold each week. Uh, one man reportedly found a nugget worth $900. Remember, gold was $20 an ounce. The placer mines were panning out about $50 to $75 worth of gold each day. That would be about three ounces of gold a day. At gold is, uh, what, $1,800 an ounce? So you're talking uh, almost $6,000 a day. Pretty good earnings for a day's work, uh, if you can get it. <laughs> um, Pauline's son, Ben, decided to join his father at Rich Hill Gold Fields in the summer of 1863. On his first day prospecting, he found the first gold uh, quartz load in the district. Almost overnight, a scene of intense mining activity quickly expanded um, the population to 1,500 people. A tent city named Weaverville, in honor of Pauline Weaver, cropped up at the base of Rich Hill. Um, eventually, more permanent structures were built. The town grew. Uh, it also became a very wicked place because of the money. There was lots of saloons, gambling, um, uh, health houses of ill repute, um, and a red-light district. The wealth seemed to vanish as quickly as it was found at the end of the stage line. Many outlaws made their way to Wilver, uh, Weaverville as their hideout, 
and lawmen were afraid to enter. This was a rough and tumble western town. More gold was discovered on the other side of Rich Hill, nearly two miles northwest of Weaverville. Um, attracted more miners. A stage was quickly established to uh, link Wickenburg to Prescott, and uh, the new town called Antelope Station was started, and more gold mining and thousands entered into the area. Um, there was all kinds of skirmishes and wars and pistol fights. Uh, one situation uh, spoken of here where Indians were killed in Weaver. Um, the story goes that relations between two miners and the native population was unfriendly. Uh, the Native Americans brought firewood to trade for flour, sugar, and tobacco, but the Indians stayed in town until midnight and then snuck back in and stole animals, according to these reports. And at the next visit, they were questioned and uh, ran out, but they caught up. The Apaches grabbed a pistol. Both men were killed before getting the shot off, and other Indians stopped coming to Weaver to trade. Instead, started a campaign of cattle and horse wrestling that made every unguarded animal a target for thief theft. So, uh, whatever you believe, I'm I'm sure that the settlers, you know, were not kind to these people, and they were just it, it just was bad all the way around, bad. Um, also, Mexicans came out of Mexico up there to. Uh, uh, get food, water, things like that. And eventually the army established a fort in the area to try to protect miners uh, because of these valuable resources. And, of course, we know that uh, that's when the Native Americans were slaughtered and uh, mistreated even more so by our um, early settlers and military in the area. Pauline's Ranch um, was raided many times in the area there, um, the Apaches attacked and killed his son on April 10th, 1865. Um, and then uh, that gold area continued on. We're going to read more about that history. Um, but he died of malaria on June 21st in 1867. And they found him dead in his tent. His obituary read... Powell Weaver, or Pauline Weaver, a noted trapper and pathfinder and oldest of the American settlers, is dead. His decease was congestive chills, and he expired at Camp Lincoln on Verde, 50 miles east of Prescott, on the 21st of June, where he was buried by the companions of the 14th Regiment for which he had been acting as a guide in Indian scouting. He first came to Arizona in 1830, more than 30 years before its organization as a territory, and in 1863, with Walker, opened up the central region and famous Weaver and Walker diggings. He rests after a career of three scores, years, and ten, so, so eventful that the simplest record of his incidents would read like a romance. His body sleeps as he would have it amidst the grand mountains which he loved to explore, and road solitude, of which he preferred beyond all the excitement and ease of civilian and society, earth lie gently on his aged boots. So, he did die. Um, when the Indian War ceased, the posts were uh, closed, the camp was abandoned in 1890, um, and uh, Pauline was given an honored spot in Prescott, so I believe they moved his grave um, there's a book 
that was published that you can read about. Very popular um, story about Pauline Weaver and uh, some of the people that he was close friends with um, that you can read about as well. Next, we will talk about the life on the Arizona frontier. Um, we will highlight that a little bit. And we may get into Rich Hill and the Wild West, um, talk about a few of the highlights between 1865 and 1886. We will continue on with a little bit more of the geological history and much, much more. So I hope you enjoyed today's exciting episode. Please come see all things Radical Rocks, RadicalRocks.com. Subscribe, like, um, share. We really want to grow and we need your help doing it. Thank you. And remember, rock hounds don't die. They petrify.